playfulness doesn't come easy to you and how do you uh, bring playfulness into the equation and that fits of course with question number two when do you override your unwillingness to be playful and when do you heed that unwillingness right and I think in general that's a very important topic when we look at this kind of stuff right um there's two ways of looking at um, the, the way or the things that you can do. I'm going to call it in the widest sense in a tantric exploration. This means different things to different people. What I mean by that is uh, something that comes from felt and experienced via the body outwards. Right? So um, when we do these things, we can look at it, and many people do look at it that way, as in you um, go and somebody busts your boundaries or busts your edge or gets you to the edge and dangles you over the edge. And it's only a good workshop if you are essentially fucked up for three days after and <laughs> need massive reintegration and it feels like you've opened so widely. And then there's this thing. You need ayahuasca to recover. From yes. <laughs> right? So that's one, that's one type of learning, let's say, right, where somebody dangles you over the abyss and makes you do things that you don't really want to do, and then in the aftermath, you might feel incredibly stretched open, and then often that scars, right, it, it snaps you back shut, and sometimes if you're very healthy or if the, the circumstances have aligned perfectly, you will have a little bit more opening in general, right, maybe, maybe not. Most people don't remember, so they have to go back to the next workshop eventually because, you know, there's these big things. But that's one way of looking at um, learning things or engaging with things that you don't naturally do. Right? So within that, there is also in the non-workshop setting um, a, a way of doing that where you are essentially decide that you learn something, you get a coach to teach you how to do that, right? Like a tennis coach or a, a yoga teacher or whatever, right? You have a skill you want to learn. You find somebody who's really good at that skill and you have that person uh, take you a little bit further than you would take yourself, like a personal trainer or something like that. Now, a personal trainer, if it's, if it's a good personal trainer, let's say you want to become really fit, knows that the dangling somebody on the edge approach is fraught with a potential for injury. And that the people who train like that, dangling on the edge, right, often fall over the edge and then they can't train anymore because they have to recover from an injury. So what makes a trainer good and also what I think makes a workshop good is when you're taken just a tiny little bit into the direction of where you have a hold, but not to the point of injury or where you are so sore that you can't continue working that particular muscle. So that's the bigger exploration, right? So there's also um, a viewpoint, which is the viewpoint I'm subscribing to, considering that I have a, a very uh, you know, long uh, background in trauma therapy, working with you know very disordered situations and couples and sexual counseling, um, I believe that when you don't stress the nervous system, 
so much, the nervous system can actually open and you can have subtle but much, much deeper shifts over a long period of time that are lasting because you're not pushing to the edge. And because when you push to the edge, even in a yoga move, right, or, or the, everything has to tense up to keep you from going over the edge. And that tension in the nervous system habituates you know, more tension with that general act in, in your life. So the you know, kind of stepping off the gas a little bit and not going to the full rev and, and learning in that domain is usually longer lasting, but it's more subtle. It's not so much bang and you know, fireworks. That's the setup for what I'm going to say next, which is if you feel like you're not playful enough, we can pretty much assume that there's a few things happening, right? One of which is that somewhere in your mind you're going, well, I'm just not a playful person. It's not me. It's not authentically how I express. I'm more on the dark and broody end of the spectrum. And, you know, authentically how I express myself is dark and broody. As I'm saying this, he's smiling like that. <laughs> so, so, so dark and broody is your authentic expression, right? The problem with that is that, of course, your authentic expression is nothing else but habits and patterns that have already been established. And that anything that you repeat often enough or practice enough becomes authentic after a while. That's the whole thing in human learning. Habits and patterns, habits and patterns, habits and patterns. Right? Everything we do is habits and patterns. That's how a human being learns. So you could say... Um, Playful is, a, is just a disposition you haven't practiced yet, right? So then you go, okay, I'm going to practice playful. Now what kicks in is all the reasons you're not playful to begin with. Childhood stuff, wasn't considered cool when you grew up, your first girlfriend thought that was silly, um, you're in your family, joy wasn't expressed, whatever, right? So there's all these psychological reasons why you're not naturally playful. And that's fine, but you could just say, well, I also don't know how to, pl to play the piano and I want to learn the piano. When you do that, you don't go, no one in my family plays the piano. You know, it's just not cool to play the piano in my cultural environment. Maybe you do, but you just go and learn how to play the piano and it's the same with becoming playful. It's just a skill and you could go at that. So next step then is you decide you want to become more playful and that now has to become a practice. And then another thing kicks in altogether, which is your relationship to practice. We talked about this in the men's study group, didn't we? Probably. With the two fronts, did oh, yes. we talk about that? So there is what you do, that's one practice, and then is how you relate to that practice that actually reveals everything about you and your life, right? Because that's where the rubber really meets the road. You're going, oh, I'm going to be playful now. I'm going to schedule like a play date with my friends and we're going to be rolling around out there in the gardens and 
you know, whatever, playing tag and throwing the frisbee or whatever you consider playful, right? Could be a little bit more risque and sexy or whatever. And then you go, okay, I'm going to do that every day. And that's the moment it usually goes like, you know, you find every reason not to do that. And that's where it becomes interesting because that's where your commitment to yourself kicks in. Yeah. And the practice of playfulness or the practice of anything really is just the vehicle to the discovery of what's really happening. Right? Just like coming here. Well, coming here, you learn some stuff. You might even already know that stuff, but it's bringing yourself here into relationship with your relationship to that stuff. That's the real revelation, not the stuff in itself. And you can do the same practices for 30 years, and I have done some of these practices for 30 years, and it's in the disposition to the practice that you learn everything about yourself that you ever need to know. So that's a long-winded answer to how do you get more playful. You decide to, you set it up, and then you deal with your unwillingness to actually do it. And that's where the the actual meat and potatoes of the situation lies, so to speak. And so now that ties into what Steve says. When you are really on the, on the forefront of your area where you want to engage, you are going to have bodily no's. And it's not easy to tell is the bodily no a no that is born from a real wisdom of the body or is the bodily no born out of the resistance to that thing? Right? Well, as Steve said, trial and error. But how you usually know is that when you do it, you do a mild version, right? Your body goes, no, 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 no. And you're going, okay, I'll just do a minute. Right? And then you do the minute. When in the aftermath, you have that feeling of, ah, now, like that opening, then it's probably resistance by habit or, you know, conditioning. When you do it, and then in the aftermath, you just feel like shit, right? And all other kinds of stuff, of stuff, then probably it's your body's wisdom. And so you don't commit to like, you know, three hours of playfulness with six people expecting it from you. You do a minute and see what happens, or five minutes or 10 minutes. And then that allows you to calibrate what's resistance and what's actual body wisdom. No. And ever so often you have to go against body wisdom, like Steve was saying, because you have a certain value. Um, you know, and, and then within that you can calibrate. Like once again, barely anybody goes into the gym and goes, yeah! You know, like you at least have this moment of, oh, you know, this is going to hurt, or I'm going to be tired afterwards. And then you get going uh, because you override that first thing. But then when you notice that your knee hurts a bit every time you squat, that's the moment to go, okay, backing off that one, right? So there's, there's give in that decision-making process. Arousal in general, any kind of arousal, could be fear arousal, uh, sexual arousal, right? uh, shopping arousal, you know, <laughs> any kind of arousal situation 
is a situation in which you essentially become somewhat dumb and uh, one f one focused right so so it's and of course fight or flight which is one is the extreme arousal situation right the the, the survival instinct the very act of fight or flight narrows for instance your vision you get tunnel vision so that you're effective in dealing with the predator and stuff like that. So there's very specific things. And of course, in sexual arousal particularly, um, it overrides your reason, right? The same in shopping arousal, it overrides your reason, right? Um, fear and so on and so on. So when you, are, when you are in those heightened states, you can pretty much assume that your regular judgment is impaired. That's the very definition of a state, right? And in a good sexual experience, of course, when you have like really, really good sex, or in, you're in that, in, it doesn't have to be actual intercourse, but that thing in the aftermath, there's a little bit of a feeling of, I did what with what? You know, like there's, it's like this slight... <laughs> Tension between embarrassment and and the remnants of the arousal, right? And that, that's really the the good the good aspect of sex. Well, that's a state, and that of course isn't a place in which to make decisions ever, right? And one of my clients calls the the, the first couple of months that you're spending with a new lover the dick fog. And you always want to make sure that dick fog has lifted before you make any decisions. This goes both ways, right? Uh, meaning there's, there's all kinds of stuff that happens from the, from the sexual arousal on to hormone output, right? There's all kinds of stuff. And you are not going to make reasonable decisions. So, and this is also true when people go on longer workshops, you know, like, and, and there are certain workshops, particularly in like the, what do you call that, personal development, is that what you would call it? You know, like where, where 1,500 people are like, yeah, 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 and like you're in this state, and then you're like, yes, I'm quitting my job, yes, I'm taking, I'm becoming sovereign, and then, you know, three weeks later, you're like, ooh, shit, you know, and, and, and that happens. So good general rule is don't do anything till you've had time for the dick fog to lift or uh, for the arousal to subside. All right. Addiction is essentially um, cla like described as you do the thing even though it has negative con consequences. All right. And that's a pretty powerful thing, and it certainly can happen, particularly in the sexual relational domain. And that is how a lot of people get themselves pregnant and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, come inside me, right? And then afterwards, it's like, oh, shit, right? And then 18 years later, you know, you're, you're, you're graduating the come inside me from school, right? And, and that happened, that those kind of things happen a lot. And so, um, I could tell you stories, but I'm not going to. But, but so that all said is one of the ways that you can help yourself is involve someone else. And, of, and, and what I mean by that is 
find someone who is a voice of reason. You're not going to listen to them, but they're at least going to slow you down, right? But what that means is you have to find somebody who is actually honest with you and actually has your best interest at heart, not some girlfriend who goes, oh, wow, what could possibly go wrong, right? And then afterwards they go, well, I, I could have told you so, right? So often a good therapist is, or a mentor or somebody whom you can trust to at least delay your reaction by enough that you have a chance, and, and that's often the case. And anybody who's ever dealt with drug addiction or alcohol addiction knows that you have to delay the moment where you make the mistake. And if you're that driven that that's not even in your, in your mind, I would seek help at that point, right? Because that, that, that could potentially make you make some really stupid mistakes. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said so rightly, it's a very, very deeply individual decision, right? And it has to be. Um, anything that's prescribed, both on the monogamy and on the polyamory or lovers or whatever, or, or, or um, promiscuity or non-promiscuity, uh, there are cookie-cutter ways of being, right? And, of course, cookie-cutter ways of being have... Uh, advantages and the advantages are that you are conforming to something that's been prescribed so to speak both ways being promiscuous or polyamorous or monogamous right there's a safety in there because it's a known set of circumstances that you can adhere to and then other people tell you how it is for them and how it should be and all of that and then you know hopefully that fits with your ideas or not right but if you're going down the road of exploring who you are and what you want to do with your life, it gets a little bit more tricky. And the reason I'm saying that is because at that point, you are on your own, right? And you have to make the decisions and you have to live with those decisions. And that's a bit different than when you go along and you get swept along with the stream and you just do the thing that, that everybody else does in your circle, right? Because then there's a certain kind of like, oh, well, I guess this is just the way it goes versus, hmm, how is it for me, right? So the best way to deal with things like you want a partner is that you look at the biggest possible picture, and that's usually a fairly sobering moment <laughs> because what you have to look at is who are you now? How old are you now? If children is something that you're considering, right? This is different for men, of course, since they can always have children. But for a woman, um, Mick Jagger, I think, just had another one with like 76 or 78, right? So there's no end to the viability of sperm in, in most men particularly as they can always find yet somebody who is incredibly fertile and young, right? So that's not exactly how it goes for you if you want children. You have a window, and within that window, there's then your personal considerations. Are you particularly fertile or not? Do you have hormonal issues or not? Uh, you know, is there family history of certain things? Blah, 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 right? There's, there's physical considerations within your fertility consideration if having children is something that you want, 
Right? So that's one big thing that as a woman you have to consider. Children or no children, and then how does that line up with your age? Then the next thing, this is to give you an idea how bizarre it can be to be a woman because that time window is real, right? Is then the next thing you have to go, where am I in my career? Do I actually have a career or do I have a job? Am I pretending my job is going to be a career? And uh, ambitiously forging into something that's actually not going to really lead to something? Or am I actually sacrificing things because it's going to go somewhere down the road that is an actual career or my life purpose or the thing that I need to give in the world so that I feel I've done it, right? So that's a whole other consideration. And of course, one of the things that really sucks is that usually the years that you're the most fertile are also the years where you should be forging ahead in your career, you know, which is, of course, a whole other weird-ass thing. So you have to kind of reconcile that. Career, children, children first, then a career. Can you have children and a career? Most women will tell you, not that easy. So there's all of that to consider. And once you make decisions on that, then you have to go, well, what kind of a man can support that set of circumstances, right? Which, which rules out an enormous amount of guys right there, right? So then you go, who am I relative to such a man? Is, am I even appealing to a man like this? That's the next step. And that's usually a very sobering moment in time. Right? where you have to reckon with who are you. Because often what happens is, um, and I hear this a lot because I work with very high-achieving men a lot, and you hear that they feel that they've been sold, a, what do they call it, a bill, bill of goods that isn't actually true. So you have these super adventurous sexual women, and then... They close shop, have a kid, and then when they're kind of done with that, they want a career and, and, they're, and, and all the things that they sold to begin with, which is this open, sexual, adventurous woman who supports his purpose has gone. And what's left is something that he didn't bargain for. So those are some really important pieces to see because huge resentment either which way can build when that happens. So you do all of that, right, which, which you should do, and you should really take time and think it through and put it on a whiteboard or whatever, right, so, because these are super important things, and talk with friends and people who know you well, and a therapist and a mentor and whatever, and then you go, well, how do I go at getting that, whatever that is, right, and then that will determine if... Um, sexual adventurousness and and let's call it promiscuity i'm you know i'm like meaning having more than one lover at this particular moment is beneficial to your general trajectory and endeavor or not 
right? So things to consider there is like you said, if you tend to open yourself very deeply to a man with whom you have sex, and then you go somewhat gaga, like she was saying, right? Suddenly you're like off to the races, thrashing about in the dig fog, right? And <laughs> you've totally, totally lost uh, the, the, the lighthouse of your relationship desires, right? And you're like in the underbrush here in the morass for another six months, and then another six months, and now your eggs are getting shriveled, and you know, like those are some, those are some actual considerations. I know, but it, it's, it, it, I know nobody wants to hear it, but you know, these are some, these are some things that, that when you don't consider will bite you in the ass big time later on. So, but then it could be that you are somewhat, you know, you, you're a bit starved, <laughs> And you haven't had that kind of thing. So you, you come from a bit of a needy place or, or sexually depraved or deprived, depending. You, know? you have to feel that. And maybe a lover or two uh, in the right set of circumstances where you keep it fairly light and maybe you don't have penetrative sex. You can, you can pick your nourishment according to what you need and you are replenished and you can look at the kind of man you want to have sex with without that, right? So one possibility, other possibility, casual sex takes your focus away from the thing that you really want and it makes you, you know, go all over the place and attach to the wrong guys and your body feels weird and, you know, so that's the individual um, Thing that and FOMO isn't enough reason to sports fuck. It really isn't, right? Um, it, 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 there's not a way of saying it, right? Uh, and, and women can do that as much as men under the right circumstances, but there's always, for both men and women, there's a certain kind of closing off you have to do to do that because you're limiting the interaction to something very specific that doesn't, there's no options, right? And then my final caveat, because I have to say that one too, is women date potential. And that's horrible. <coughs> and what I mean by that is we tend to see a guy and imagine what he looks like when we're done with the renovations. Oh. If a guy isn't already what you want him to be, don't go there. <laughs> because you might have gotten the apartment cheap because no one else wanted it. But now... <laughs> it goes the other way around too. But women do that for real. She's saying yes, she knows it's true, right? But then you're putting all your time and attention in it, and the real horrible thing about it is that it's not an apartment, it's a human, and as long as he isn't fixed up, he's going to feel your subtle disapproval. And there's nothing worse for a man than to feel like he isn't quite it. Now, you can always find a dude with that kind of dysfunction who had a highly overbearing, uh, disapproving mother, right? But that's not a good relationship. So you want to find a man who, if he would never change, would be great for you. And leave the guy that you want to change to somebody who doesn't want to change it. 
right? And that's, that's the other piece in it. And sadly, the dig fog makes it such that the um, fantasy land of renovation shows up right away. Right? <coughs> like it's like some home renovation show shows up in your mind after you had sex the first time. Right? And so, hence, maybe not. Right? If your body says no, it's a no. No ifs, whens, and buts, right? If your body has even the slightest hesitation, don't go there. There's always another day. You don't know what it is. It could be, um, and it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if there's nothing going on and you're just, you know, prude or repressed or whatever. Doesn't matter. You don't, in the sexual occasion, you don't let anybody penetrate you till everything in you goes yes. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is you're training yourself to override your nose. And that's a very slippery slope, right? And so um, it might be you, it might be him, it might be the weather, it might be what you've eaten, it might be the moment in your cycle or the moon or whatever. It doesn't matter. If it's not an absolute yes, don't do it. Yeah. And this is particularly true in relationship because when you start having sex against your uh, impulse, you're going to make your partner pay for it later, right? And, the, and you will because, you know, then it, it, three years down the line, it's like I compromised myself sexually and it's your fault, right? And, and all of those kind of things. So... But here's the thing, the interesting thing to know, and any good lover knows that, just because it's a no now doesn't necessarily mean it's a no in three minutes. It just means you don't progress until it's a yes. Right? And, and that doesn't mean you stop everything. It just means that's the hold right now. And then you creatively go this way instead of this way till this opens back up and then you go further down that way and then when the stop happens you go you know you you widen the situation again and you play on the outer edges of that and and, and that can actually be you know incredibly sexy and also widen your pleasure threshold and your perception incredibly so so it's not uh, you have a no in your body stop everything it's you have a no in your body stop going further in a consensual sexual situation of course I don't think I need to say that but this is this is only between two basically consenting adults doing the thing that they want to do without any coercion so that's my disclaimer on this it's a natural thing that when two women meet right there's all kinds of things that happen very quickly, any woman knows that, right? There's an assessment of a million different criteria <laughs> happening in a second, right? And within that, there's two general um, strains. One is resonance and one is competition. And um, both are important. Now, a lot of um, 
importance has placed has been placed on women being highly competitive and really horrible to each other, and that can't be, and we all need to be sisters at all times. That's you know, the heavy leaning on that thing. And the other one is we're always only resonating because that's the right way to go, right? And that must happen. But when you go in from the outer edges, both of these things are very important when you look at how human beings have developed and how women have developed. So um, the probably oldest form of a women's group, so to speak, is women sitting in a cave or a longhouse or a tent or wherever in a stone circle together in a circle mostly because that's a good way to see everybody and doing things together, cooking, ritual, um, storytelling, somebody gives birth, somebody dies, whatever, right? So that aspect is the communing aspect of resonance. And that's super, super important. But the competition aspect is equally important because the only way, and this is why it no longer works, um, the only way that in a tribal, so to speak, communal group of women there is peace is when every woman has a place it's like in a, if you've ever had chickens right they have pecking orders or dogs right so you have to have a place and so how do you have a place well you assess where you stand in the pecking order and you slot in there and there's a little bit of you know and then and then you find your place and then that's your place and there you have value and there, have, there you have contribution, and there you are acknowledged. And then there can be actual cooperation and sisterhood because you have a place to be. You don't constantly fight for the, for the, for the rank, so to speak. Right? So when you stand in front of a woman for a dance-off, it's a moment of artificial competition. That's what a dance-off is, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's fun to do that. But you have to know that in your body what will load up is the immediate ranking, right? The immediate assessing of where she compared to you, does she have more power? Um, because, of course, this also means available resources in the tribal sense, right? So all of that happens. And then... You are going, well, fuck, I'm not that. Oh, that must mean I'm shut down. Oh, shit, right? And then all kinds of other things start cascading. Well, you have two options. You can go into the competition where you go, well, let me show you mine, right? Or you can go, okay, that's a good one. I'm just going to witness this. Or, and this is the trick, in such moments, you can go, huh, I like this. Let me imitate this. Let me resonate with this. Let me actually learn from you through my body, and I don't care that you're better at this. I, you know, I yield. I yield in the competition, right? And at that point, when you don't make it mean like you're lesser than this woman, and because that's the whole idea of a competition. Somebody's got to win. So she won. Right? 
But what you can gain is you can, now that it's over and everything and you're in your own home, you can feel the resonance of that in your body and feel whatever there was and see if that fits with your expression. And maybe it does, but maybe it's just not your expression. So you'll resonate it in your body. You see how if it fits. If it fits, you practice it in the in the pleasantness and solitude of your own practice. And the next time you two go to a dance off, you pull out the big guns. Why not? Right. But it's really important to understand that if you put in a competition, all that will kick in. Right. And. And in, in our reptilian brain goes, ah, fuck, that means she gets the tribal leader, which means she'll have food over the winter and her children will survive and my mine won't. Right? That kicks in. And then comes our conditioning, not good enough, not feminine enough, oh, I'm so shut down. No, you probably weren't shut down. It's just you might not have had the ammunition for the dance-off. A good trick is also if you're well-versed in those kind of things, meaning you have some flavors under your belt, meet it with another flavor. Don't try to meet it where it's happening. Meet it with another flavor. And then you're no longer in competition, you're in play. 